Hello and welcome to your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week we are looking at two aspects of the war in Ukraine. First, on providing weapons with a number of European countries standing behind Ukraine and offering military assistance while Russia intensifies its attacks. And the second aspect we're looking at is innovative solutions that are aiming to find robust ways to hold parties accountable. Iran is preparing to send more than 1,000 additional weapons, including surface-to-surface short-range ballistic missiles and more attack drones to Russia to use in its war against Ukraine. At the same time, this week, the Euractive Network reported on Ukraine being supplied by Sweden and Bulgaria, while French President Macron tweeted his commitment to speed up the delivery of anti-craft solutions. We ask our colleague Krasen Nikolov specifically about the position of Bulgaria being so close to the conflict zone. What are the perceived issues at stake and how does this inform the government's position on supplying weapons? Let me explain you the, the, the whole picture. Even since the times of the communist totalitarian regime, Bulgaria has had serious traditions in productions of Soviet standard weapons. Uh, Bulgarian military factories are the the largest of which are state-owned, produce weapons that are modified versions of Soviet weaponry and that are better and more expensive on international ammo markets and weaponry market than uh, those Russian-made weapons and ammunition. So uh, the market for these weapons are Africa, the Middle East, of course, India, and mostly Ukraine, which are uh, which has large reserves of uh, Soviet weapons and uh, actively uses them in the war. Bulgaria has traditionally supplied the Ukrainian army even before the annexations of Crimea. And uh, I have to say that they, they have mm, been several sabotages of Bulgarian factories in the last eight years uh, for which Russia is suspected by the Bulgarian prosecution. And um, uh, precisely because of the sale of the weapons to Ukraine, war uh, was, in one hand, uh, opportunity for the Bulgarian economy to grow and to sell some stuffs to them. And on the other hand, it, it plays to the pro-Russian feelings for most of the Bulgarians. And it plays uh, for the pro-Western uh, parts of the Bulgarian society. So it keeps the society, Bulgarian society uh, quite, quite divided. And is the government's approach consistent with EU and NATO positions? Bulgarian government is following closely the, the, the NATO and EU position on Ukrainian war. We uh, we're saying that the Russians are invaders and uh, the, the Ukrainians are victims. So uh, I, I must say that is very clear on our international uh, position. But if we're talking about uh, supplying weapons, we're not talking only for the state. 
We have uh, private companies here that produces produce weapons, and uh, we can say to these companies, you cannot sell to these countries uh, your production. So officially, Bulgaria is not selling weapons to Ukraine. We must say that we have a, a decision made by the Bulgarian parliament on that issue. Now, providing military support to Ukraine isn't an easy mission since the country cannot be approached by its ports or its airspace. However, loopholes in legislations and indirect routes make the situation easier as they are being exploited to provide arms to Ukraine. The data we collected for Euroactive.com shows that Bulgaria uh, earns huge sums of money uh, from the sale of the weapons to Ukraine. But through Romanian, US and Polish companies that are on the border of uh, Ukraine. So I have to I have to say to you that nobody now can sell directly weapons to Ukraine because uh, if you sell it to Ukraine, the place that uh, transports the weapon or the ships, no, no, no ships can enter the Ukrainian ports, no airplanes can can fly uh, freely into Ukrainian airspace. So everybody is selling uh, before the Ukrainian borders. So everybody is selling to uh, some mediators and not selling directly to, to Ukraine. But we know the politically Bulgarian positions. We are not selling to Ukraine because we have some Russian sentiment. So uh, before the Russian invasion, Bulgaria sold weapons for about 1 billion euro per year. Sales are now expected expected to reach about 2.5 billion. And uh, our buyers are located on the borders of, of Ukraine. There are huge uh, quantities of Bulgarian weapons in Ukraine, as the witnesses say. The same loopholes seem to be used by Russia, according to Leticia Sedou, EU program officer at the European Network Against the Arms Trade. I mean, we Europeans, we have been selling weapons. My country, France, has continued to deliver um, spare parts for weaponry in Russia, even after the arms embargo, because there was loopholes. It was legal, but it was terrible from an ethical point of view. And we have a country which is delivering weapons to places where she should not do, and then how can I, on a personal level, criticize the Ukrainians because they should not take any weapon to fight? I mean, it's just not possible from an ethical point of view. I mean, there are individuals who are dying there. And who are they to tell them, well, die in silence with no weapons? I, I, I don't know if you see, but still I am opposed to the fact that we deliver weapons to the to a, a situation of war. Everything is not about laws and rules in, in, in that matter. You see what I mean? It would be easy to say the law says no deliveries to weapons for Ukraine because that's what the uh, arms trade treaty say and that's what the EU common position says. That would be the easiest because then you're very comfortable intellectually speaking with yourself and with your principles. As we enter the 10th month of the conflict, there are oppositions on the ongoing weaponization of the parties. On the one hand, Leticia Sedou argues that it's impossible to effectively tell Ukraine that it cannot defend itself using any means. We never managed to convince our governments to change their policies. But at the same time, how can I, me, being a privileged Western woman living in this very comfortable place in Brussels, 
telling them this is really wrong to take weapons in any situation. Our role here in the West is to combat the structural problems of weapons, the structural problems of the arms industry, etc., etc. Now, I'm not going to say to people, oh, you're wrong to take weapons. I can't tell them. On the other hand, he's Yar Usoy, a Turkish politician and deputy chair of HDP party and member of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, mentions that armed trade will not lead to peace anytime soon. There is no solution to that conflict by just, you know, fighting each other and killing each other. At one point, they need to sit down, negotiate their differences and find a way out. But it seems to me there's some... But I think what we need right now is an immediate ceasefire and then the parties, they need to sit on that table without killing each other and start talking. I am not saying it's going to be easily resolved. But it is better than killing each other. These debates often take place at country level too. Crescent returning to you in Bulgaria. Is the population divided on which approach to take when it comes to providing weapons to Ukraine? After the start of the war, Bulgarian society was divided into pro-Western part and pro-Russian part. Because of the totalitarian past, we were part of the Warsaw Pact. We were behind the, the Iron Curtain, as you know. Bulgarians uh, accept this is normal, uh, most of the Bulgarian, because it is, uh, it is not official. We're not selling uh, weapons official to, uh, to Ukrainians. Uh, nobody blame us that we're selling weapons to one, uh, to one or the other side in this war. So it is a little bit uh, Bulgarian hypocrisy because... 70% of the Bulgarians are against selling weapons to the Ukrainians and Bulgarians to be uh, involved on, in one or another way in, the, in this war. You're listening to your Active's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast and our agrifo podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcasts at youractive.com. And it's clear that fact-finding and evidence-gathering is extremely complex. However, innovative solutions are being developed to find robust ways to hold parties to account in due course. One example we can share today is the work of Eyewitness to Atrocities. Eyewitness to Atrocities is an initiative of the International Bar Association that combines law and technology to promote accountability for serious international crimes. Wendy Betts, director at Eyewitness to Atrocities, tells us. So we're looking at crimes like genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. The way we do that is we provide human rights defenders around the world, um, primarily in conflict zones, with a mobile camera app that allows them to film photo and video related to these crimes in a way that is easier to authenticate so it can be admissible in court proceedings. So it can have more impact for investigations and trial. 
Eyewitness to Atrocities has been active in Ukraine since 2017 and was recently endorsed by the Ukrainian public prosecutor. The footage that is stored and safeguarded until it can be used is reviewed and catalogued to ensure that it can be more easily absorbed by investigators. And the organization seeks to bridge the gap between the frontline responders who monitor events in the field and the investigators and lawyers who can use that information to hold parties accountable. Wendy, are there any key differences between the evidence you gather and what the press reports on? And maybe you could explain discrepancies between news reports and realities on the ground. So the types of footage we see are is very similar to what you're, you're seeing on social media and in the news, the destruction of property, the, the, the impact on, on livelihoods and, and homes, residential buildings, um, commercial buildings, etc., the, the challenge with the footage we see on social media is that it's very difficult to verify and, and ascertain the provenance of that footage to know whether what's being reported is actually what's being claimed. So it's, it's not as much a discrepancy in the type of information you're seeing. The challenge is making sure that you can trust that information and use it further towards accountability. So that's the role that we're trying to play, is to make sure that those individuals who are taking accurate, authentic information and, and sending it to the media and sending it on social media to raise awareness of what's happening, have a tool to do so in a way that can be ensured that that information is authentic. So it's less the, the storyline or the, the content of that footage. It's more that we are here to make sure that we can trust what we're seeing. And when your data is used, who is usually held to account? Is it governments? Is it individuals? We provide the information that we collect uh, to various types of investigative bodies because we define accountability very broadly. So this can be actual criminal investigations for individual criminal responsibility. It could be more soft law tools to to raise awareness and, and hold the governments responsible. And it can be different types of method uh, methodologies looking at different uh, specific types of human rights violations. So we have provided footage to uh, international criminal court investigators. We've provided footage to, in the case of Ukraine, to the, the prosecutor general's office, but we've also provided information to the United Nations uh, Commission of Inquiry and to other bodies. So who's held responsible really depends on the, the nature of the body that's doing the investigation and, and what investigative paths they've chosen. Um, in the past, information we've collected from other locations elsewhere have been used to hold individual perpetrators criminally responsible, uh, but also used to, to raise broader awareness of, of specific types of, of violations in certain contexts. And speaking a bit more personally uh, now, what would you like our listeners to know that maybe they don't realize right now regarding the evidence that you're collecting and the war in Ukraine? There's a, a vast misperception that there is plenty of evidence that exists. We've all seen on social media what's happening. It should be quite clear that crimes are being committed and, and who's responsible. And I think uh, the challenge uh, in, in understanding how daunting this task really is, is that you have to, to understand that 
again, what we're seeing on social media is not automatically going to be evidence. All of that information will have to be verified and authenticated and further investigated. And war crimes are tremendously complex to prove. So you need a, a huge variety of types of information. It's, it's like an evidentiary puzzle that you have to pull together different pieces. And that's going to be photo and video and witness statements and documents and physical evidence and records if you can get you know, military orders or other records and all of these will have to be carefully put together because these crimes are are the most difficult to prove by design because they're some of the most serious crimes you can accuse an individual of and therefore that the the standards are very high for what you have to prove and so it really is uh, a daunting task uh, for all of the bodies that are doing the investigations and you, obviously the, any efforts on for justice you need to be led locally but any country in the world would be challenged by this this task before them and so i think it's great that you see a, a lot of collaboration and cooperation trying to come together to put together this vast evidentiary puzzle So many questions are left unanswered for the time being, as the war in Ukraine is continuing. To keep up to date with the latest information coming from Ukraine, you can visit Euractiv.com, which is providing extensive coverage of the war. I am Evikiori and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. If you haven't subscribed, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by myself with the help of Anitubes and Krasenikolov. Thank you for listening.